Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With Bernard, her husband of 55 years now in the grave, 78-year-old Harriet Chance impulsively set sail on an ill-conceived Alaskan cruise that her late husband had planned. But what she hoped would be a voyage leading to a new lease on life becomes a surprising and revelatory journey into Harriet's past. There, amid the overwhelming buffets and incessant lounge singers, between the imagined appearances of her late husband and the very real arrival of her estranged daughter midway through the cruise, Harriet is forced to take a look, a long look back, confronting the truth about pivotal events that changed the course of her life. This is Your Life, Harriet Chance is the title of Jonathan Everson's new novel. It's his fourth novel. Previously, uh, he's author of three award-winning novels, All About Lulu, West of Here, and The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. At last, the novel's being made into a movie. Sherman Alexie is called Everson the Most Honest White Man Alive. He's written for The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Salon, National Public Radio, and uh, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, was released uh, just last month. Jonathan Everson, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thanks for having me, Tom. You make me sound so good. I look pretty good on paper. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, t- talk you up real good there. Uh, we talked pre- previously on your novel West of Here, which is a, a very interesting novel about a town, essentially. Uh, a place. Yep, just another another character study disguised as a big, sprawling, epic novel. That's right, that's right. Um, so I wonder, uh, maybe we could start with, you, you have a very interesting uh, essay uh, at your publisher's, Algonquin, um, and you talk about your grandmother and your mother, um, and they, I guess, had a relationship like a lot of mother-daughter relationships, that, uh, a bit problematic. Um, but I wonder, first, if you tell me about your grandmother. She was of that generation where, you know, you were, you were known as Mrs., uh, you know, right. Chance I didn't know or she Mrs. had a name so, so. until after my pop Hank died. She was just Mrs. Harry C. Hank. That's what her mail said. That's you know, that's just that was kind of her identity. And then, uh, then once my grandpa died, and we all thought that uh, we all just thought, God, what's she going to happen without his, without his needs to cater her life to? Without you know, what's going to happen to her? And man, she just totally reinvented her political ideology. She just, I mean, she she just really impressed us. She was like she she sort of blossomed like she was herself for the first time. I just thought that took a lot of moxie at that late stage in life, you know. She must have been god mid-80s when that happened. And that it seems like that is generational, right? You you were you I guess you were expected to sort of subsume yourself into at least the family identity. I you know, I mean, yeah, I think for countless generations that was the that was, you know, these were the uh, sexual allocations for women. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think Harriet's, uh, I think Harriet's, uh, you know, pretty good example of, uh, of, you know, a woman of that, well, she's kind of in between the greatest generation and the boomers, but I think she's, uh, you know, she's kind of straddling that, uh, straddling that generation. And, um, you know, even down to my mom's generation, you know, my mom, you know, when she was 17, she, she, she wanted to be a museum curator, you know, and uh, she took a few uh, art history classes, and then she met my dad and spent next 11 years pregnant and, you know, didn't join the workforce till she was 39 after my dad split and my sister died. And she was the milk lady at the, at the elementary school. So, you know, not exactly, uh, not exactly what she set out to do for herself. Uh, the reason I dedicated the book to my mom, too, is because, you know, it's because of her sacrifice that all of my dreams have come true. Mm-hmm. You know, here she yeah. could make any of hers come true and uh, you know, she she's she's helped me make all my dreams come true. 
And uh, Harriet, uh, you know, is a product of her times, uh, born in the 30s. Uh, so as she's coming of age in the, in the 50s, uh, you know, it, it's not even on her horizon to be a lawyer. She's a paralegal, and that she enjoys that, but uh, it doesn't even enter her mind, I guess, that she could be a lawyer. Yeah, I think I think it enters her father's mind that she can be a lawyer, but I just don't think she can believe it herself. Yeah, and, and you've got the office, uh, you know, atmosphere as it would have been in the fifties. You know, the, the yeah, part, part and of I such, just gotta you know? say, I mean, uh, I'm so tired of everybody calling it the Mad Men fifties. <laughs> like yeah. the Mad Men is right. the Mad Men is just completely. Uh, co-opted that era in American history and, and women in the workplace and stuff like that. I'm not even sure that he did a very good job of, of reflecting it personally, but like I just every time you're the first guy that mentions it that doesn't call it the Mad Men 50s. I guess that's the, you know, the, the, the power of popular culture. What, what, do you think, uh, what do you think Mad Men got wrong? Oh, I don't know. It just seemed a little too on the button for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just like the the the... Just the social backdrops, everything was just a little too on the nose. I think it was uh, maybe not quite as ambiguous as it might have been. Uh, and I think we go back and forth in our view of the 50s. You know, we did this. everything's hunky-dory and, and uh, you know, whitewashed clean, and, and then we want to make uh, it more ambiguous, and we seem to go back and forth. Yeah, well, you use the word whitewash, that's about it. I mean, how you view the 50s probably has a lot to do with whether you're white or a person of color, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of lot that was admirable about that era politically and so forth, but uh, a lot that was you know obviously not. Yeah, I'd like to go back uh, to your to your essay. This <laughs> I got a kick out of Jeez, this. I hope my mom never yeah. reads that essay. Yeah. I can't <laughs> let him put it in the page. Whenever I write about the personal stuff, ah, yeah, I get grief from my family because I, I always get something a little wrong. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Even though, even though I, I'm, I assume parts of, uh, you know, your family show up in your novels. They do, they do, and it's it's interesting because your family never really recognizes themselves. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, they, they they go looking for themselves in there, and they think they're one character, and they don't even realize that they were actually an inspiration for a different character. So you're protected a bit that that way. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to forsake my family. I mean, I, most of my characters are just amalgams, and definitely, you know, I mean, a lot of what I write is based on what I've observed, you know, mother-daughter relationships, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, so this this uh, this is actually you're you're sort of poking fun at yourself here in this passage uh, in your essay. So your your grandfather has died. Your mother's going to go help your grandmother to sort through all the all the stuff. Um, and uh, you think, well, I'm going to go down and, and help out, not only physically but emotionally. And I'm quoting here, uh, they would. Y- you figured that they would welcome me as sort of an arbiter, a mediating party to help settle what was sure to be a series of disputes and litany of disagreements. I figured when I wasn't ironing out discord, diverting squabbles, and generally saving the day with my male presence, I could score a few free meals and maybe a Turkish wallet. That's <laughs> this is your idea of what's going to happen. Well, I got the wallet and the free meals. Uh, they sorted their own stuff out. They didn't need my mail presence, it turned out. Right. Uh, and this was amazing to you. They they had, in two weeks, sorted sorted everything out. Well, you know, I, I mean, really, all my books, I, I really only have one theme, and that's reinvention. I've got to believe that we can be the people we want to be, that we can inch our way uh, a little closer to our idealized selves. And, and so... Uh, I mean, I'm just always impressed when people do this in a later season in life because, 
you know, we have this, uh, the prevailing wisdom in America is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And, you know, I mean, there was a conscious effort on the, on the part of advertisers in this country to stop marketing and stop programming to the older generations because they said their brand loyalty is too, too strong. You can't change them. So we're not going to stop throwing money at them, even though they had more disposable income than any other generations. Um, so it just uh, the elderly started to get marginalized, and, and now we all we all sort of marginalize them. You know, you got these adult kids, to, you know, looking for every sign of dementia in their parents, just waiting to put them away, and you know, assisted living facilities, and uh, you know, uh, I'm guilty of it too. You know, I, I live in a I live in a kind of a retirement community in Squim, and so you know, when I go to the grocery store and I see a line with seven people in the queue and then i see a line with two old ladies i go straight for the line with seven because you know i know the routine they're going to pull they pick up the big you know circa 1960s purse and start fishing (laughs) around for their glasses and then their checkbook and then they go through every page to make sure the register's uh, up to date and then then they reach in and get the coupons and then they reach in and get the circular and they hand it to the checker and the checker's like this has been uh you know expired for six months and they're like oh dear i've got the newer one in here and you know and you're just tapping your foot going god you know my uh my dogs are in the car um (laughs) So I do, I'm guilty of that, but see, the thing is, just because people's lives grow smaller or, you know, they slow down a little bit, um, just because they start scheduling their hair washings and paying for everything in exact change doesn't mean they're not one of our greatest resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I, I kind of characterize this novel as a coming of old age. Mm-hmm. And that is, is very hopeful, uh, reinvention in and of itself and the fact that you can reinvent yourself at an advanced age. I really got to believe you can do this with your life, that, that it is a choice, that you can be, you know, I mean, that's the whole penelope of human drama for me uh, between these two signposts. One is your, you know, your reality, and then, and then on the other side is this finish line. This is, this is my idealized self, and, and I just feel like at any point during that lineage, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a choice to change yourself. Is this something that comes from... Your life, I guess. I guess it must. You know, that's this this idea of reinvention or this hope. Do you want to, I guess, continually reinvent yourself? Yeah, somewhat. You know, I mean, I'm just trying to become a more expansive person, which is, you know, why I write fiction. That's why I wrote eight books before anyone published me. Not because I thought number nine was the charm so much, but because uh, just the act of writing fiction, jumping through that empathic window inhabiting characters so fully that you accrue what feels like very genuine experience, that makes me a better husband. That makes me a better dad. It makes me a better person. Um, so, like, the reward for me is in the work itself. But, you know, my work, I don't, uh, you know, for me, it, it, it really is. It's just a, it's an exercise in empathy more than it is. Uh, I'm, I'm not really so much trying to uh, edify my reader or, uh, you know, bludgeon them with my opinions or ideologies. I'm just trying to evoke emotional responses and, you know, invite them to question their own emotional responses and their own ideologies and so forth and and reflect on their own lives. I mean, that's how I see my job. Um, And uh, so, you know, I I guess I'm always in the process of, of, you know, reinventing myself by trying to, to view the world from as many possible points of view as possible. And is it, uh, I guess, for yourself or for your characters, or, you know, people you you observe, is it reinvention for reinvention's sake, reinvention to, to what end? What 
what what is success do you think i mean i i i feel like uh i think we're all sort of uh unless we're totally narcissistic i think we're we're all sort of rife with a certain sort of self contempt i feel like we all have this kind of this is your life uh voice that that uh prods us and conjoles us and chastises us but is ultimately you know sympathetic to our cause so i mean i i just I, you know most of the people i surround myself with are not uh completely happy with their psychic spiritual or emotional development and um there's always hope mm-hmm. and a lot of times we don't express you know the deepest things uh, there's a scene in the in the book where harriet chance um she's pregnant again and she had wanted to uh you know continue with a career now she won't be able to and then then the the narrator that this this is your life uh, host basically tells her you know you won't be expressing this to anyone for I don't know eighteen years or something. Yeah, uh, it's even longer. I think it's something like forty three years uh-huh. or something like that. Not until on the boat with Caroline. Yeah, I. You know, I, I envision that voice kind of like I kind of like I was describing to the voice that I have. I, that voice, it's got that sort of menacing, you know. Ralph Edwards uh, game show host thing going on, but really I kind of viewed this as as Harriet telling her own story, but a divergent Harriet, a Harriet who had not lived through the events in the book as they unfold, a Harriet who diverged from from the Harriet in the book at a very early age, Mm. which is how she has all the inside knowledge about Harriet. Mm. So this this Ralph Edwards is really Harriet, uh, you know, narrating to herself. That's the way I view it. Yeah. 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 I don't think, you know, I've noticed it doesn't really matter. None of the critics or anybody else seems to be able to agree exactly what the voice is. Yeah. Um, to me, it was just sort of intuitively this, this, this you know, uh, this inner voice or muse that sort of holds us all accountable if we have a conscience, you know. And that, that voice, I guess speaking personally, that voice can be, you know, pretty harsh. It can, but ultimately I think very sympathetic. I mean, I'm that harsh on myself all the time. Dude, I'm... <laughs> I mean, believe me, I beat myself up all the time. I, 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 I think it's, I think it's an instructive voice. I think it's ultimately sympathetic, but yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tough on Harriet. Yeah, and you, you can, I think you can probably train that voice. I, I, I've worked on that voice to, to, <laughs> to, to mellow it. You know. The funny thing about the novel, this, you know, the early drafts of the novel were were just really linear and and just kind of suffocating. I, I hadn't I hadn't arrived at that voice yet, that second narrative voice. So it was all just sort of a linear linear reportage and the week leading up to the cruise and then the seven day cruise. And uh it just wasn't working. I mean it was uh I mean it was working for me in terms of inhabiting the character and getting to know the you know, the, the minutia of Harriet's quotidian life, but uh it wasn't working for my editor, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. When I tried to deliver the book he's like, Well I don't like Harriet. And I'm like, well, you probably didn't like Miss Daisy at the beginning either. And he said, well, yeah, but Jessica Tandy's performance won me over. And that's when I realized that I had to be a little more authorial. I had to get put my own personality and my own, you know, I had to put a little bit of the authorial performance back in the novel. And I arrived at that voice, which is, you know, light on its toes and, and buoyant and fast and hard hitting. You know, it totally brought the novel to life. You know, and I, I wrote all that This Is Your Life material in like a mad six-week period, whereas I had spent two years on the rest of the, you know, on the on the sort of real-time story. But it, it wasn't until I had that aha moment with that voice that the b- book really came to life off the page, because 
I don't like linear narratives, you know, as you, you know, from west of here. I, I like mm-hmm. to fracture the narrative. And here I was missing my greatest opportunity for a nonlinear narrative because this was a novel of reflection, memory, and association, all totally nonlinear processes. So, like, once I had that aha moment, the novel just really came to life. But, you know, I guess this is a, I don't know, take heart if you're struggling with a novel out there, writer. <laughs> right. Um, sometimes right. you don't see the light until very late in the game. Mm-hmm. By, by the way, parenthetically here, uh, your, it was your ninth novel that was published? Yeah, well, there were eight books. One of them is sort of technically a memoir, although it was a little bit fictionalized, as all memoirs are. And then uh, one was a, you know, kind of a loose collection of stories. But there was eight book-length, you know, pieces of work. Uh, And, and, you know, most of them weren't very good. I mean, the first few, I literally dug a hole and buried them and (laughs) salted the earth. I mean, (laughs) I just, you know, it takes a long time to get good at something, and... I mean, I was 19 when I wrote my first novel, and, you know, it started off pretty promising. It was about these four inmates at the Grant County Jail in Euphrata, Washington. And uh, then, you know, the first act took place inside the, inside the jailhouse, and then the second act began with one by one. As they got paroled, I followed their lives. And then the story started to delineate and eventually started to get away from me. And, and by the end, it was a novel about a 19-year-old guy trying to finish his first novel. <laughs> and so... I mean, I knew it wasn't gonna. I knew it wasn't gonna. I knew it wasn't gonna be successful, but I still had to finish it. Yeah, but what I was heading toward is is uh, how, how do you keep going? You know, by by number eight, you know, you don't know number nine is going to get published. What do you? Well, like I said, it's about my motive. I mean, I'm already getting so much out of doing the work. I'd be doing it whether or not I was winning awards or even being published. I mean, I, I really do. I mean. I'm kind of crazy, dude. I mean, it's like, <laughs> seriously, I am like off the charts, uh, manic spectrum. And if I wasn't, if I didn't have somewhere to put the voices or, or if I didn't have writing to focus me, I mean, I'd probably be sticking needles in my arms. I'm not kidding. I mean, it, it just, it is my lifeline. Writing is my lifeline. So, you know, I did my due diligence. I licked my envelopes. I sent them out. Uh, not, not in a very wise way. I mean, I'd sent 500 page manuscripts to the bottom of office buildings really pretentious uh, cover letters, and, you know, nobody bid, of course, but that wasn't ever what it was really about. It was just about the work. Hmm. And, and that's what it remains, even now that you're, you know, yeah, published Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are external pressures. I do make my living up, and i got a family to feed and so forth, and overhead, and so, you know, I mean, I, 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 I handle it as a career now, but, like, when I'm inside the work, I don't, you know, the career, the external influences really have nothing to do with the uh, deciding, you know, the subject matter of my books or how I'm going to approach them or what audience I'm trying to appeal to or anything like that. I mean, it's always going to be about, you know, what I get out of it and what it does for me. Focus is not easy for me. Biochemically, like I said, I'm just kind of off the charts. And and so uh, writing slows me down in a way nothing else can really. Uh, actually, it offers me an escape, you know, allows me to get outside of myself and, you know, climb into somebody else's body. Schizophrenic as that seems, mm-hmm. um, it's a pretty amazing experience. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Jonathan Evison, uh, his uh, fourth novel uh, is a very interesting novel. It's, it's called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. 
uh, with Bernard, her husband of 55 years, now in the grave. 78-year-old Harriet Chance impulsively set sail on an ill-conceived Alaskan cruise that her late husband had planned. She's forced to take a long look back in front of the truth about pivotal events that changed the course of her life. Uh, Jonathan Evison is uh, author previously of All About Lulu, West of Here, and The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. That novel is soon to be made into a major motion picture. And uh, repeat this, uh, Sherman Lexi has called Evison the most honest white man alive. I'll ask, uh, Sher- uh, ask uh, Jonathan Evison about that uh, in the next segment. I also want to talk about uh, this uh, conceit, this this uh, structural uh, thing of... of uh, Taking Harry Chance onto this game show, as it were, this this old game show, uh, This Is Your Life. Um, and we'll talk about that. And uh, it always takes me to the parody from your show of shows. We'll bring that up as well. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the California newt. USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of co-evolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for joining me for Access Utime. Tom Williams, my guest, is Jonathan Evison. Uh, his uh, three previous uh, novels are all award-winning. Uh, he's a best-selling author of All About Lulu, West of Here, and the Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. His new novel is This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. 78-year-old Harriet Chance uh, is on an Alaskan cruise, uh, which was a prize won by her late husband, Bernard. There amid the overwhelming buffets and incessant lounge singers between the imagined appearances of her late husband, the very real arrival of her estranged daughter midway through the cruise, Harriet is forced to take a long look back. And we're talking about uh, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, on the program today. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Jonathan Evison, have you ever met Sherman Alexi, by the way, he's coming on this program later in in the month. He, uh, oh yeah, yeah. We Sherman and I run in similar circles. You know, we run each other conferences, things like that. Okay, uh, uh, that's a nice panel together. That's nice praise. The most honest white man alive. Yeah, I don't. I think so. I mean, coming from Sherman, he's not always too easy on white people. So yeah, that's, that's right. uh, you know, I think uh, the context of that was uh, we were doing a. Uh, panel together with Jess Walter, the three of us at Town Hall in Seattle, and, and a reader had asked, you know, uh, you know, somebody out in the audience had asked, you know, what do we read? And, and I was just, I sort of, you know, I was kind of embarrassed to say, you know, I got to be honest, I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, American-centric in my reading. I, I probably read too many dead white guys. Uh, I try to read a lot of women as well, but I'm not reading enough world literature. I'm aware of that kind of thing. I was kind of going, you know, 
I was saying something like that. I was being quite honest. You know, I was uh, I was a little ashamed at uh, my my reading proclivities, um, at least at this stage of my life. And 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 I think that's when Sherman leaned over and said, "You know, you're the most honest white man alive," <laughs> just for admitting it, I guess. But I don't know if it was a left-handed compliment or yeah. what. I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you'll take it. Um, yeah, sure. I want to talk about the. Uh, I'll always take honest. I'll always take honest. Yeah, yeah, that's important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is your life. Of course, I think people are familiar with the old uh, show. Uh, I always, I always remember that show filtered through a, a wonderful parody on your show of shows, Sid Caesar. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, I know Sid Caesar, but I have not seen the satire. And uh, so it's, it's, it's just extraordinary. Sid Caesar, you, you, uh, you encounter him in the audience and, uh, Carl Reiner is the, uh, you know, the, the host of the program. And the kind of the funny part, there's many funny parts, including Howard Morris as Uncle Goopy, who keeps coming back and, and being over the top. But uh, Sid Caesar, uh, in the audience, he doesn't want to go up. He <laughs> he doesn't want to have this is your life. They have to drag <laughs> him up. So it is very funny. The audience laughs. Um, but I wonder, you know, that I, I related that to, you know, what if I were called up? Or Harriet Chance herself. Uh, you know, there's, there's perhaps a you know, an attitude of unwillingness that, uh, that we, yeah. we sort well, of have to redo our lives. This version of Ralph Edwards, the Ralph Edwards voice here is, is not sentimental, it tends to be a little more unkind and hard hitting. I mean, the show, as I remember it, and it was in syndication still when I was a kid was much more sentimental and happy and, you know, I guess kind of schmaltzy compared to, to, to the voice in the novel which is really asking for accountability. It's not saying, here's your first grade teacher, you know, uh, do you remember when you, you know, wrote your first sentence or what, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, it was, uh, it was bringing to light skeletons from the closet. It was, it was holding Harriet accountable. It, it's, is you know, it's very un-Ralph Edwards-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Harriet and, and Bernard's marriage. It, it you know in some ways it's not unusual it's pretty pretty ordinary i you know in observing my grandparents marriage it seemed like uh you know uh what went on beyond the scenes you know you you never know as a grandkid so much, you know what i mean but just observing it 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 seems sort of just to grow quieter and quieter and more and more distant very very routine um you know they slept in separate beds uh just it seemed like uh, after a while an arrangement. There's a line in the book about uh, how I wish I don't have the book in front of me about, but uh, how 55, 55 years of cohabitation hasn't behaving like bookends. Uh, you know, which were you know opposing forces placed in uh, you know proximity to one another, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And Harriet, uh, Harriet's quiet. You describe her as she, you know, she didn't really utter a sound until she was two years old or something she's yeah and i think i think this is a theme with so many women and 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 not only western culture probably globally for so many generations that this you know there's so many women that have this secret history uh you you know i mean uh in terms of uh uh, being stoic with their yearnings a secret history of, of yearning a secret history of events a secret history of uh frustration uh 
all this stuff that needs to be a secret history of repression, everything that needs to be sort of bottled up and 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 sort of preserved, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, I guess for forever. But uh, in the case of Harriet, you know, and in case of uh, a lot of the women, uh, you know, elderly women I've I've been in contact with as a caregiver and so forth, um, you know, once they're out from beneath the shadow of this sort of patriarchal arrangement, they tend to uh, start to explore with a, a fervor and, uh, you know, become themselves for the first time. And th- that blossoming, uh, there's a hopeful quality to that. That's a reinvention that you're you're talking about. It's also sad, isn't that an indictment of the, you know, the way that patriarchal order, the, the you know, the marriages as they were constructed, at least. I, I, oh, by the certainly way, certainly it is. And you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not certain that it's not still alive and well to a certain mm-hmm. respect. But I mean, seem to have uh, the last few generations have made some strides in that way. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say definitely it's an indictment. I was going to ask you, and you've answered this in, in part, uh, it, what you think about, you know, newer generations. Is that is that changing? I really don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I can't tell you. I'm watching my kids. I don't know. They're a little <laughs> too young yet to, to, to decide. Yeah. I, I kind of notice a trend uh, with, uh, you know, kids kids getting married earlier again. I mean, Lisa, like, like my sister's kids, you know, she has three kids, and they're all... They all got married by about 24, you know, which I think is, I think, a little earlier than, like, the generation prior to them. A little more along lines of what, you know, pre-baby baby boomer generations were. It seems like they're, uh, you know, sort of entering into this adulthood. And I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> See, this, think... is the, this is the 21st century. Your 20s are just an extended adolescence. Explore, you know. Get kicked in the teeth a few times, man. Hold off until you're 30 to have kids and, and settle down forever. So that's why you think they shouldn't get married as early. They, they, uh, uh, you explore, know, I mean, explore. if it's true love, what that, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be prescriptive. I'm just, I, I guess I'm just, this is very subjective. I'm just, I'm just really glad my life didn't even start till I was 39. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, that's when I became a father. I got, you know, I married my, my wife when I was, uh, you know, 33 I, I, I that that experience I had prior to that uh, was just amazing to me. I mean, I, I just so informative and so I mean expansive compared to you know I think maybe I don't know. I, I'm just glad I didn't get married and settle down at 23 because I, I just mm-hmm. you got a long time for middle age. Yeah, but all along the way you can you know as you say there's always hope you can explore new vistas, reinvent yourself. But I, I guess there are some constraints there, aren't there? If you get married, yeah. I mean, I think it's easier to reinvent one person than reinvent a marriage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't say necessarily easier, but I mean, it takes two cooperative parties and two. You know, the the, the dynamics definitely make things a little more constrained. I mm-hmm. think. What if you tell me a little about math? Yeah, yeah, that's true. What if you tell me a little bit about uh, Caroline uh, the, and and the relationship there between Harriet and. The way I see it with Caroline and Harriet is that they're, uh, you know, my first novel, and all about Lulu, I really, I, I just, I, I kind of explored the uh, relationship between fathers and sons, and to me that ended up being more about some sort of implacable distance between the father figure and the son. When I started to explore the mother-daughter relationship in the context of Harriet and Caroline, it was 
there wasn't nearly so much distance. It was like that they were actually so much alike, but wouldn't recognize it. Um, almost competitive with each other, which is another hangover from, you know, thousands of years of patriarchy, which is, you know, women pit in competition against each other. Um, but I, I don't think Caroline and, uh, you know, it's like my mom and my sister, they're so much alike, but they don't see it. You know, they're both kind of meddlers, but my mom is just like over the top meddler. And my sister is a lot more subversive with it, but they're really both still so much alike and they can't, they can't get on the same page. Mm-hmm. They just like they grade on each other, but I really think it's more about their similarities than their differences. And I mean, I think we find that that's human nature too. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think so. I mean, we tend to not like people that are like ourselves sometimes upon first impression. Uh, the other thing that always comes to my mind when I, you know, there's we stereotype genders, and sometimes it isn't true, but it's the communication part of it. That, uh, you know, men stereotypically don't talk i wonder if you find that to be true to to women yeah (laughs) i mean i guess i would say that uh i would say within our gender you get a bunch of guys out in the garage drinking beer and i don't know at least with my friends we tend to be pretty frank um i just think it's when you mix the genders that the communication becomes uh, a little different Mm mm-hmm because we have, uh, you know, again, this is total blanket generalizations, but, you know, generally speaking, different styles of communication, I think. And you, do you, I don't know if you've, as I look out, I don't know whether I see that changing. It seems to be. Yeah, I don't know if that's an innate thing or not. I don't, you know, I mean, there's certain personality types, you know. I have, I've had women friends that communicate more like men, and I have men. I mean, I probably communicate in many ways more like a woman. I was raised, you know, pretty much exclusively by women, so I kind of, uh, I've kind of pretty initiated in both uh, communication styles and tend to to balance them pretty well, uh, sort of relative to who my company is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I resonate with that. I was raised with sisters, and my brothers are younger, so I I, uh, I got more comfortable in that you know world of women. For man, having big sisters is um, it's a great resource. That's all I'll say. I had <laughs> yeah. two big sisters, and they basically raised me. And and what it's done to uh, improve my understanding of women is uh, incalculable. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, the cruise. Uh, I have a lot of friends go on cruises. It's a kind of a new thing, you know, so, well, about the 70s became popular. Uh, Harriet goes on this Alaskan inland uh, inland cruise. It's, a, it's In some ways, it's kind of odd. It's, 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 it's kind of a weird world. You're sort of, sort of in this insular world with buffets and lounge singers and, and such, and then you got this beautiful nature outside your window. It's one of the rare things about that particular cruise, actually. You know, it's it's the Alaska Inside Passage. See what I did there? Yeah. Because it's kind of hairy. It's Inside Passage. There you go. Um, what's great about that cruise, and sometimes you just want your life to imitate your art. I really wanted to take that cruise. Is that sometimes when you're on a cruise, you're just looking at the horizon for days on end. Uh, but when you take that particular cruise, there's, I mean, there's just both. Every time you pop up on deck, there's just beautiful scenery on both sides of you. I mean, you've got the Yukon on your right, and on the left, you've got these big, broad-shouldered, you know, island mountain terrain. Um, I I just, I like the idea of her sort of being 
trapped in a, a, a sort of a, a foreign and sort of frivolous environment um, where everything is catering to distracting or entertaining or engaging her, but really she's got so much bigger stuff on her plate, mm. stuff she doesn't expect to rear its head uh, emerging. Including the reappearance of her dead husband. Yeah, yeah, that's a little ambiguous at first. Like, you don't know if, uh, you know, if Harriet's, you know, because she's had a few instances of uh, dementia herself. Um, so it's a little ambiguous at first. Uh, I don't want to tilt my hand too much, mm -hmm. but uh, right. there are people that have trouble with that part of the novel. Uh, and, you know, that's okay with me. I mean, it, it was a big act of conceit. You know, some of the writers I loved growing up did this kind of thing all the time. You know, your Kurt Vonnegut's or Richard Brodigan's. Uh, you know, it, it's a big leap to ask your reader to take, to suspend their disbelief. But even if somebody doesn't buy it 100%, I would, I would posit that the information in the story, the character dynamics at work there, everything that that element of the story brings to light is really necessary to the story. And really, uh, you know, it, it's not that big a leap. We we do live with our dead, don't we? You know, they they yeah, certainly live true. on with us. I, the question here is: Is this figurative or literal? Or you know yeah. what I mean? It's, yeah, it's never exactly. clearly defined. But I, you know, for me as a reader, I don't have trouble with that. Mm -hmm. And there there are unresolved things that I guess we're trying to work out. You know, with with those who passed on as well, which certainly you know happens with with Harriet. Um, Let's take another break. When we come back with uh, Jonathan Evison. Uh, we'll talk more about his uh, novels, newest novel. This is your life, Harriet Chance. I want to talk about um, the the, uh, the previous novels being made into a movie um, and aging. So my mother says aging is not for wimps. There's uh, there's it's a very unflinching look at aging here in this novel. I want to talk about that as well. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Uinta Basin, offering over 45 accredited degree options including human services, sciences, and natural resources. More information at uintabasin.usu.edu. As part of Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune's Utah Public Insight Project, we are asking you to share your thoughts about fee increases at some of Utah's national parks, monuments, and historic sites. Will paying more make you want to visit less? Or do you feel a fee increase is necessary? How much are you willing to pay to party in our parks? Become a UPIN source. Go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Jonathan Evison. Uh, Jonathan Evison lives on an island on the coast of Washington State. He is the New York Times bestselling author of three award-winning novels, All About Lulu, West of Here, and The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, and now a fourth novel, which is called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. It was released last month. He's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Salon, National Public Radio. Uh, his novel, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, will soon be a major motion picture. We're talking about This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, on the program uh, today. Uh, so, Jonathan Evison, you you give a, a rather unflinching um, view of, realistic view of, of aging. Uh, as I mentioned before the break, my mother says it's not for wimps. She says that, uh, you know, about uh, she's in her 80s now. She's about 75, she's observed. At age 75, things start to fall apart. That's what... 
start happening to to her. Hey, if you're lucky, I'm 47 and I, <laughs> I got a two and a half year old daughter. I'm already falling. You're apart. already falling I apart. Feel like yeah. I got arthritis in both of my elbows, and I, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, m- mortality. Once you're looking at when you're pushing 50 and you got a two and a half year old kid, uh, you, you know it's impossible not to start uh, start questioning your mortality. And yeah, no, I mean the whole process is humbling. Uh, and you know we're we're all going to get there if we don't go sooner. Um, so what have what have you observed then? There are sometimes there are you know very heart wrenching problems. Uh, Bernard goes with some dementia, right? I think a brain tumor. No, just uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's, okay. Um, which you know that that's tough. Your, your, oh, your mind, your mind goes really first. For, it's really tough for the person that doesn't have it too. You know, um, I, I just I don't I, I I feel like it's just you know sometimes you'll look into the eyes of an Alzheimer patient. You know, I've worked as a professional caregiver, and 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 there's just something behind the eyes. There's this awareness. It's like there's a part of them that's still aware that's trapped back there and just desperate to, to, to get out and have clarity again. It's just, a, it's just the saddest and most trying thing for the caregiver, too. Um, God, I think I'd rather just be not alive by rats than get Alzheimer's. It just seems like I'd, I guess I would much rather have my body go uh, before my mind. And as you depicted in the novel, Harriet, she has a, a typical hard time with, uh, you know, trying to care for, for her husband. Yeah, and that's not a very pretty picture, but I know it firsthand. You know, when you're a caregiver, man, you, you reach a burnout point, and there's, uh, you know, I mean, there's times when Harriet has thoughts that are almost sadistic, and anybody who's ever been a full-time caregiver, uh, whether it's a loved one or for just a client or whatever, uh, they'll, they're lying if they, you know, won't admit to having these thoughts. And then you feel guilty about those thoughts, you know. Of course you do. It's yeah, so like goes. a boomerang. Of course it is. Yeah. But they're they're only a response to to being in over your head. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just a it's just a response to stress. And then, as you said earlier in the pro, uh, program, uh, you know, there there are the physical uh, difficulties of aging, but also the fact that society we're so youth oriented that it's uh, you know we almost don't pay attention to our elderly. Oh God, we're just—it's even worse than not paying attention. They're just like in the way. We're just honking at them to get out of the way, you know. It's—it's—it's it's, it's sad because you know in most cultures it is not this way. In most cultures, you know, the elders are are the most respected members of the community. You know, and we're just—it's just so backwards here in that respect. Mm-hmm. So I guess you—I don't know about societally, but I guess we can change that in our own families. Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like this book, you know, I was talking about earlier how, you know, I don't know, a couple of decades ago, there was this conscious effort on the part of advertisers and programmers to stop catering to those elderly generations. But I'm feeling like Harriet's part of this zeitgeist now where it's it's getting a little better. Like I, I noticed uh, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda have got a show now, I think on HBO or on Netflix or something like that. And um, I'm seeing I'm seeing other facets of advertising and programming starting to acknowledge the elderly again. They're still a awful big generation, mm-hmm. uh, and but for a while there, it was like nobody was paying attention, but but the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess baby boomers, that big cohort coming through, that uh, you know, maybe help you know to get advertisers for one to pay attention. Right. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, the, your, your biggest generation is now elderly. They still mm-hmm. have the most disposable income, um, you know, and I think, 
I think hopefully, you know, maybe maybe the tide is turning a little bit in terms of the, the you know, prevailing wisdom about uh, teaching old dogs new tricks. Yeah. I mean, that's what this book rails against. I mean, it's just never, it's never too late to reinvent yourself. It's never too late to learn some new tricks, you know, to, to recontextualize yourself, your history, everything, and, and, and start becoming the person you want to be and start letting the person you want to be make your decisions for you. Mm. I don't think it's ever too late for that. So if we were to, to take that to this reinvention and it's never too late, what would you suggest if someone were to set out consciously to, to take that on board and to do that? What, what would, how, do you, how do you go well, about it? Well, I think what I just said, let mm-hmm. the person you want to be start making your decisions. So if you're somebody who hasn't been that adventurous, but you want to be adventurous, well, let that person that's adventurous make the decision for you, you know? Mm-hmm. It's got to kind of recontextualize the self, you know? It's so hard just being, I mean, that's the ultimate, uh, I mean, it's the fundamental theme about being human is being, you know, ultimately alone, but uh, inextricably connected to others. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes um, the external pressure of others shapes us, you know, as, as evidenced by Harriet and so many marriages of that generation, you know. Uh, you know, we contextualize ourselves according to um, what the expectations, the external expectations of us are. And I think this is one of the reasons why once some of these women have their their husband dies and, and they get to, you know, finally some time to themselves and they're out from under the bell jar of this uh, overbearing opinions and political ideologies and, you know, dietary constraints and everything else, they really are able to recontextualize themselves and say, well, you know, this is what I want out of life. We just have a few minutes left. I'd like to uh, talk about this uh, the film. There's apparently your uh, previous novel, Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, soon to be a major motion picture. Is this uh, progressing? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's, uh, Paul Rudd ostensibly plays me, which is, you know, great, because he's better looking, funnier, <laughs> and everyone likes him. Uh, always good. Uh, Selena Gomez uh, plays Dot. Uh, Craig Roberts, a Welsh actor, 24-year-old Welsh actor who's amazing, uh, plays Trev. And uh, when I was down on set, I haven't seen the film yet. It's almost locked. I should see it any day now. But uh, what I observed on set was the rapport between Paul Rudd and and, and uh, Craig Roberts was just really, it was very true to the book in, in, in tone and spirit and performance. So I'm very hopeful. And I've just, you know, it, it's like hitting a lotto. It's just a wonderful thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm determined not to be uh, a proprietor about it, not to... Uh, not to be the precious artist and say, well, it wasn't like that in the book, you know. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Ken Kesey didn't like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I think we can all agree that was a pretty great film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm just a fan of the film. Everyone's been very gracious. I mean, I haven't even seen it yet, and I'm a fan because I'm rooting for everybody involved. And I think when I sit down to watch it, I think I'm in a pretty healthy mindset. Like, I, I don't think I'm really going to be watching it and comparing it to the book. I'm just going to let it be what it is because, you know, the... The dictates between a 300-page novel and a, and a two-hour film are just so radically different. And the expectation that they're going to be, you know, one's going to be true to the other is just, I think, unrealistic. Did, did, you, uh, did you write screenplay? Did you have a, oh, did did you have input? Oh, I did you did not. not. Okay. That's, you know, mm-hmm. another thing I'm happy about. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Free money. <laughs> I didn't do anything. And yeah. uh, I think it's in great hands, and I, I'm excited for the story to, to, to reach a whole new audience. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm thrilled that it's happening because, you know, uh, I've optioned all my books and even a couple books that weren't published, I optioned and 
at every point during that process, there's these these hopeful moments like so and so's interested, and you know, but then nothing ever comes to anything. And then in this one, just Rob Burnett just made it happen so fast, you know. So it's been kind of thrilling to just actually see it happen after all, you know, being disappointed five times before, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, what uh, what are you working on next? Well, I just finished a novel. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Ostensibly, it's finished. I'm, I'm rewriting now. Uh, called Mike Munoz Saves the World. Oh, the great American landscaping novel, uh, and it's an exploration of the American class system. Just uh, you know, one irreverent 23 year old landscaper as he navigates the American class system. It's kind of a comic picaresque. That'll be uh, really excited about it. I think it's going to really resonate with a. The ninety nine point nine 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 percenters, which is most of us. Yeah, <laughs> very good. We'll we'll look forward to that. Uh, well, we'll uh, this is your life. Harriet Chance is out, and it's uh, it's a great read. Uh, the previous uh, books are all about Lulu West of here and the revised fundamentals of caregiving. I've been talking with uh, writer Jonathan Evison. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks a ton for having me, Tom. I uh, hope you'll uh, join us for Behind the Headlines tomorrow in this hour. And on Monday, we'll be talking about the Downwinders. Sarah Elizabeth Fox will be uh, with me, and we'll be talking about uh, Downwinders, a people's history. That's on Monday, and I hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how an area now occupied by an oil refinery, a gravel mine, and a freeway was once Salt Lake's premier tourist attraction. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Everyone smells it a whiff of sulfur as your car rounds the corner on I-15 between Salt Lake and Davis counties. Nowadays, the smell of stagnant pools of mineral water might be considered an insult to the senses, but in the late 1800s, these hot springs attracted locals and tourists alike. Thermal hot springs are common in the Great Basin, and those in Salt Lake Valley were noticed by early pioneers. Orson Pratt noted in July 1847 the great number of hot springs, heavy with salt and sulfur and boiling temperatures. Just four miles north of Salt Lake City was the largest of these, the Wasatch Warm Springs and the nearby Hot Springs Lake. The new settlers frequently bathed there and by 1850 had built swimming pools, a dining room, and a dance hall. Warm Springs became a popular camping spot for people traveling into the city, and by 1865, mule trains brought residents to the baths. Many people thought mineral springs provided extraordinary cures. In an 1871 tourist guide, the Transcontinental Railroad promoted Warm Springs for its healing waters and travelers soon detoured there for the health benefits. In 1885, a resort called Beck's Hot Springs was built adjacent to Warm Springs and became known as the Sanitarium of the West. An 1886 newspaper article hailed the waters as having healing benefits for dyspepsia, diabetes, and skin disease. The article quoted a Mrs. Barnes from the eastern United States who claimed to be cured from her chronic rheumatism after visiting Beck's Hot Springs. To accommodate tourists, hotels and pools were built, and a dedicated railroad line made regular trips to the hot springs. But by the 1930s, demand for the healing waters faded, and the resorts eventually closed, ironically, for health reasons. So the next time you smell that sulfur, remember, it is a remnant of Utah's fountain of youth. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. 
For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Brian Adams is back with a new record called Get Up, which he made with Jeff Lynne from ELO and the Traveling Wilburys. Next time on Q, I'll talk to Brian about the constant role collaboration has played in his career. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. If you're a Syrian refugee, finding out that you may be taken in by another country should be good news, right? But it's not that simple. It takes them up to six months to prepare an application because it is so complicated. I'm Molly Wood. The promise of asylum doesn't mean someone's troubles are over. Next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Low oil prices mean lower gas prices for you and me. What do they mean for oil-rich countries like Russia and Venezuela? Many of these governments will have to go uh, and explain that uh, what they felt was a permanent economic progress. Uh, It was not that permanent, and that is politically explosive. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock. Word of mouth may be a great way to learn about some products, but word of mouth gardening tips can be a very bad idea. The age-old practice of passing along gardening tips and tricks is no guarantee that you'll get a good result. It might even do the opposite. In her book, garden expert C.L. Fornari looks at 71 common garden practices and uncovers the truth behind the lore on today's Zesty Garden. Do marigolds keep the bugs out of the veggie patch? Will rusty nails turn hydrangeas blue? She goes back in time to sort out the good, the bad, and the just plain silly and tells us why. In a revisit of the book, Coffee for Roses and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening combines gardening history and expert advice into one package. And in Petals and Prose, Helen Cannon takes a look at what can happen when the life of Henry David Thoreau is revisited in the exact places he did 100 years later. It's today's Zesty Garden. Please stay with me.